gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Your listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. So, uh, many of you know, uh, I've been um, out with uh, COVID, and on top of all my other troubles of late, it's uh, not been the best week, um, month, year, uh, one might even call it uh, an anus horribilis, uh, or I should say anus horribilis. Um, but because the, the, there's nothing this podcast cares about more than um, uh, on point uh, topics uh, that uh, really is sort of jibe with my own personal interests, we thought it would be sort of perfect to have uh, Matt Ridley back on. Uh, Matt Ridley is easily one of my favorite writers, and last time he was on, we were taught we talked about his uh, his book with Alina Chan uh, called Viral: The Search for the origin of COVID-19. And we figured uh, it's about a year later, we should do an update. And the fact that um, I actually have COVID is not part of some grand conspiracy. Uh, It's just weirdly serendipitous. And if we had scheduled this a day earlier, I would not have been physically up to doing it, but I feel much better graded on the curve of how I felt the last few days. So, and I really wanted to do this. So with that, Matt Ridley, welcome back to The Remnant. Jonah, it's great to be with you. I'm really sorry to hear you've got COVID again. And uh, I've only had it once, so uh, I'm one behind you. But uh, um, it's a beastly disease, and it won't go away. Which is not what they told us. Um, They said it was going to go away in various forms. Uh, Before we get into the whole uh, long whodunit here, uh, um, and maybe this is a locution that doesn't quite translate across the Atlantic, but there are people here who argue that we should stop calling it the COVID vaccine and we should call it the COVID shot. Every year you get a flu shot in America, or a lot you're supposed to get a flu shot in America. No one says it's going to prevent the flu. No one says it cures the flu or inoculates you for all time against the flu. But by calling it a vex, the COVID shot, a vaccine, you trigger all of these other arguments that are not necessarily healthy or, or valuable. Um, to the uh, to the cause, and um, I was just wondering, what do you think about the? Do you think that's a better analogy or comparison than the the way we uh, we talk about it being a vaccine when it's really kind of not? I mean, maybe it meets the medical definition. I don't know. I but. think it gets into a really interesting discussion. Uh, and just as a parenthesis, before I get into that, uh, it doesn't translate particularly well. We don't use the word shot that much in the UK for vaccines or, or anything else, or even for, we call it the jab, actually. We use the word jab, I think, a flu jab. Um, and while we're on the topic of um, Anglo-American uh, linguistic misunderstandings, how come you guys call a game where you use your hand to throw a non-ball-shaped ball football? And... <laughs> <laughs> that's like look if, if we're gonna start scoring this stuff i'll, I'll give you that one but then you know the stuff like well, <laughs> lorries versus trucks lifts versus elevators um i mean <laughs> some of the the way you pronounce aluminum it sounds like you're it's a part of some sort of magic trick uh, it's got an eye in it it's aluminum aluminium that's <laughs> nonsense it's total nonsense also you pronounce because i've been listening a lot to a british podcast the telegraphs podcast on ukraine a lot do you people really say swathes instead of swaths uh, yes we do actually that's interesting 
Yeah, it's, it's um, madness. We say swath if it doesn't have an e on the end. So you, you know, the verb to cut your grass can be a swathing, but uh, if it's got an a on it, swathes of uh, dead soldiers or whatever it is in Ukraine. I don't know what what it would be, but um, interesting. Yeah, okay. we would say swathes. Yeah. yeah. All right. So, so you're. You're witches. That's fine. You know, we've made peace with this. Um, okay, so why don't we why don't we start, because I have a lot more listeners than I did last time. Well, actually, let, let me just go back to the point you made, because I, I did want to, to oh, make sure, a I'm sorry. I yeah, yeah. point about that. I worry that this whole episode has dented the um, popularity of vaccines considerably, um, not just in the United States, but around the world. And it has done so by... Pre- producing an ineffective vaccine and being far too um, mandatory about its application. Um, And vaccines are, in my view, the greatest uh, public health invention, bar none, with the possible exception of clean water. Um, And, you know, getting rid of smallpox with a vaccine uh, was one of humanity's greatest achievements. This was the greatest killer for centuries. It wiped out Native Americans, it wiped out Native Australians, it it killed, you know, three in ten in every family for most of the 18th century. Uh, and then suddenly by the mid-1970s, it's gone altogether, and entirely thanks to vaccination. Um, polio, likewise, almost gone, etc. So vaccination is a fantastic tool for fighting certain diseases. Doesn't work very well against flu, doesn't work very well against colds, they mutate too fast, uh, and so on. Um, and uh, we found a way of certainly reducing the symptoms uh, and saving lives with a vaccine in COVID-19, but we oversold it badly. And I remember having an argument with a UK government minister about this very early. Uh, I said, look, I know you're trying to address vaccine hesitancy and you're trying to get those groups in society that are not keen on taking the vaccine to see sense, uh, and quite right too, but you mustn't go too far. You mustn't say it has no side effects. You mustn't say it's 100% effective, uh, anything like that, because then it will backfire on you. And I feel that that is what's happened a bit. Now, maybe in calling it a shot rather than a vaccine, you can sort of get away from that to some extent, but I doubt it'll make much difference. Yeah. Okay, so before we get to what's happened since you wrote your book. Why don't you recount for us, as you see fit, the story that made you want to write the book, and then we can sort of say, and then we can update what you've learned since. Because this is, like, this is, for me, this is one of the reasons I I tend to only want to write about the past, is because new events don't tend to change it (coughs) as quickly as... um, ongoing stories. So uh, I'm sure there were all sorts of things that happened even hours after your book went to press that you're like, oh, damn it, why didn't we wait a week? But first, why don't we just sort of want you to tell people what the book is about, why you wanted to write it, why you think it's important, and then we'll follow up. Yeah, you're right. It was a moving target. Uh, we were overtaken by events to some extent, although less than we feared, funnily enough. You know, the, here we are um, a year and a half after the book first came out, and it, it's it's still an open question as to where COVID came from. Uh, it's not a it's it, you know and and the information that's come forward has helped us since then in various ways, and I'll get into that later. But it hasn't um, uh, closed the case. Why did I write this book? Well, 
I was writing some journalism about the origin of COVID in early uh, 2020. And every virologist I told I spoke to said, we can rule out a lab leak. And I would say, well, how do we do that? Because, you know, it does turn up in the city with a coronavirus lab in it and so on. And they said, no, 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 we've looked at the genome and, and I can tell you that it's a natural virus. And I was happy to believe that. And, and I was relying partly on the argument that, you know, we're not that good at biotechnology yet. We can't produce a, we can't beat nature at its own game. Um, and, but I found their arguments just a little bit unpersuasive. I mean, they would point to bits of evidence and say, that's why it's uh, a natural product. And I would say, well, that could be a lab product, you know, et cetera. And so uh, I, I took their word for it. And I wrote a couple of articles saying it can be ruled out. They've said so in this paper and that paper. I later found out that those papers I, were, I was relying on were extraordinarily mendacious and misleading. So I feel very let down by the scientific profession in this one. And for me, the breakthrough moment was coming across the work of Alina Chan, who ended up being my co-author on this book, um, in May of 2020, and her saying, no, we can't rule out a lab leak yet. She's a good scientist. She's a brilliant scientist, in my view. She's a, um, she knows a lot about viruses, and vector engineering is her specialty at, at the top biotechnology lab in the world, really, the, the um, Broad Institute. And, um, uh, and, and she was, at the time, drawing attention to the fact that there were two rather surprising things. One was that this virus was well, very well adapted to human beings from the start, and the other was that... Um, uh, we the, the Chinese were now saying that it probably didn't originate in that food market. So I thought, hang on, there's more to, than meets the eye here. So I began digging and digging. And the more I dug, the more it became impossible to rule out the lab leak, but at the same time, impossible to prove it either. And eventually I said, this has got to be a book-length treatment. There are extraordinary stories in here. There are, you know, detective stories. There are, there are stories about how you do science. There are stories about how you involve non-scientists in inquiries like this, as well as scientists, um, you know, people who understand China, people who understand um, uh, uh, how to do forensic work, you know, uh, lawyers, um, policy experts, uh, intelligence agents, people like that. Uh, and I thought a, a book-length treatment was justified uh, I persuaded Alina that we should do it together. And we both said to each other right at the start, we don't think this necessarily came out of a lab. We, we, we were both about 50-50 at the time. We, we thought you can't rule out the lab. We need to know. We need to understand. But we felt that it was well possible while we were writing the book that a smoking gun would emerge that pinned the blame fairly and squarely on the food market or on the laboratory. We couldn't tell which. To some extent, we're still in that position. But we both feel that over the intervening uh, two years, really, since, well, year and a half since we, since we no, two and a half years since we started doing the book, um, the evidence for the laboratory leak has got stronger and stronger, and the evidence for the market has got weaker and weaker. So both of us now say we think it's more likely that this did originate in a research-related accident at the Wuhan Institute of Virology or one of its uh, sister labs in Wuhan. 
So um, just to refresh people's memory about the key reasons why um, you reach this conclusion. I mean, one of them is about where the actual bats come from and what bats were available at the, at the nearby market. And, and I want you to explain that, but also just, it's really just a very important to point out to people that if this happened natural, it was naturally occurring the odds of it occurring across the street from the foremost COVID virology lab in the world would just strike some people as just like too on the nose uh, not to take more seriously. But anyway, why don't you talk about where these bats came from, why we don't think it could be a, a natural origin and and where the genome comes from and all that. Yeah. Well, just on the geographical coincidence, um, uh, an analogy might be helpful. In 2007, there was an outbreak of foot and mouth virus on a farm in southern England. Um, not the big outbreak that happened six years before that, but this was another outbreak. And it was just 13 miles from the world's leading reference laboratory for studying foot and mouth virus. Mm-hmm. Now, the world didn't say, well, it's probably just a coincidence. You know? <laughs> I mean, nothing to see here. The world said, hang on a minute. And they immediately investigated. They found that the lab had reported a leaking pipe. They called in a contractor. They called that contractor up and said, where did you go next? And he said, oh, I went to that farm. Case closed. You know, so it, it was easy to solve that, that question. So geographical coincidence can matter. Um, Wuhan houses the biggest bat coronavirus research lab in the world by a mile. I mean, they do more work, they've published more papers, they've collected more samples than probably the rest of the world put together of bat SARS-like coronaviruses. Um, And they didn't get them locally, to your point about which bats are we talking about. Um, They've never found a SARS-CoV-2-like virus in the vicinity of Wuhan. They found lots of other viruses. But they found a ton of these viruses, well, a bunch of these viruses in southwest China in the province of Yunnan, and in the neighboring country of Laos. Um, and uh, they brought them from there to Wuhan. I mean, I had a row with an American scientist who said, we never sent any viruses from Laos to Wuhan. And I, you know, I said, well, sorry, here's an entry in a database of the genome of a virus that, that was sequenced at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And it says that you guys collected it in Laos and you sent it to Wuhan. And it was deathly silence in response to that uh, tweet, uh, I have to say. So <laughs> never got to answer. But, you know, so, um, so there, was a, there was a major operation going on for about 10 years, um, maybe more like 15, collecting viruses in bats all over Southeast Asia, but particularly in Yunnan uh, and that area, shipping them to Wuhan, um, isolating them, trying to grow them in the lab, uh, sequencing their genomes, manipulating those genomes, infecting um, the cells of uh, human, human airway epithelial cells in the lab, and also infecting humanized mice. And also we think, although we can't quite be 100% sure about this, they were keeping bats at the lab and infecting bats and bat tissues. They published papers on how to keep bats and, and how to um, grow um, bat tissue in culture in the laboratory, for example. So uh, th- there is no question that this is a bat virus. You know, we, we, th- th- that's not in doubt. Um, it, it's not a mouse virus. Uh, it's not a um, fruit bat virus. It's a horseshoe bat virus. Now, the horseshoe bats are a genus of small, very sophisticated little bats um, 
that are extremely diverse. There's around 100 species. Most of them live in Southeast Asia. Um, that's the concentration of the, of, the, of the genus. None of them live in the Americas, interestingly. You can find horseshoe bats in Africa and Europe, but you can't find them in the Americas. So, uh, the, you know, the, the, the problem we have to solve, the puzzle we have to solve, is how a bat that naturally lives in a horseshoe bat, sorry, how a virus that naturally lives in a horseshoe bat came to turn up in a city a thousand miles away where there aren't very many horseshoe bats and no viruses of this kind have ever been seen despite a lot of sampling. And, you know, there are two possibilities that make sense. There are various other ones that make no sense, but there, the two that make sense are that someone was um, smuggling wildlife uh, or just trading wildlife into a market in the city uh, and it somehow got infected. Maybe it was stored in a cave on the way or something and bat droppings fell into the cave. Uh, and then that meat was sold to people, they ate it, they got infected and so on. The problem with that is that that's roughly what happened in the case of SARS in 2003. We very quickly found infected animals in the market. We very quickly found a pattern that the the index cases tended to be either animal traders or um, people involved in fruit, food preparation. Um, uh, and none of that has turned up in this case. There's no connection to animal traders particularly. There's no connection uh, to, uh, you, know, you know, we've got the evidence on whose stalls in the market had most um, signs of the virus in it. And the vegetable sellers were just as in, and the frozen food sellers were just as infected as the wildlife sellers. So there's um, there's not the kind of chain of data that you would expect to find, uh, and you did find in the case of lots of other viruses, Nipah as well, but also SARS, just hasn't turned up. Um, uh, uh, and in, and that leaves us saying, right, well, what other possibilities do we need to look into? And then we're confronted with a wall of silence. We are confronted with a devastating lack of transparency on behalf of the Chinese government, but also the Chinese scientists involved, who put up smokescreen after smokescreen about telling us that we're being impertinent in asking these questions, but refused to divulge what was in their database of all the viruses they had collected up until that point. Uh, and they refuse to divulge all sorts of other things, some of which we've managed to find out by other means. Um, but, uh, you know, just imagine if they came forward and said, okay, here's the database. We can prove that we haven't been, we haven't tampered with it. it. It shows that we did not have anything like this virus in our lab before. That would shoot me down in minutes. You know, that would be the end of the story. It would exonerate them. So why don't they do it? It's very odd to me. You know, uh, I... I uh, I, I've, I, I find it hard to believe that if you're in possession of a complete comprehensive database of all the viruses you've been studying and you are claiming that none of them is related to SARS-CoV-2, you wouldn't simply publish it. It's funny because like in matters of law and criminal justice and that kind of thing, the burden of proof is always on the accuser. But in matters of science, the ethics are kind of different, right? It, it, transparency is a def, is is a is a good in unto itself, particularly in medical ethics when you're talking about trying to save lives or prevent the loss of more lives. 
you would just think that all of the equities would be pointing towards, let's just get it all out there and figure out what the hell happened. And it is more damning. Silence is more damning than it seems to me that, that, that the, the, you can draw inferences in a way that you couldn't in a, when you're talking about an individual who refuses to cooperate with some sort of inquiry. Right. I mean, pleading the fifth is not particularly um, uh, convincing in this case because nobody's talking about uh, prosecution at this stage. We're just tr- trying to get to the bottom of what, what happened. And there's another burden of proof point, though, which is that um, a, a lot of Western virologists are very uncomfortable with the idea that, that it might have been a lab leak and have tried very hard to say that they can rule it out already. They're still saying that. Um, we think that's way premature. Um, uh, uh, there's no conclusive or dispositive evidence uh, yet that could, could convince me of that. But um, their argument is partly that the burden of proof rests on people like me and Alina to prove that it was or could have been a lab leak, not on them to prove that it was or could have been a food market outbreak. And superficially, you can see their point because previous epidemics have started from food markets and on the whole, not very often from labs. But there's two problems with that. One, they do sometimes start from labs. There have been outbreaks as a result of lab leaks. Um, In Sverdlovsk in the Soviet Union, there was an anthrax outbreak caused by a a lab leak. Uh, In 1977 in, in northern China, there was a flu epidemic which went worldwide, which came about as a result of a a lab sample of influenza virus that was 15 years old and had gone extinct in the wild, being revived as part of a vaccine experiment. Um, There are at least three, possibly seven cases of SARS, the original SARS virus, infecting lab researchers, one in Singapore, one in Taiwan, and about four in in Beijing. Uh, in 2003 and four, So uh, so it's not obvious to me that the burden of proof does lie with the lab leakers. Um, and furthermore, we are now living in a world where there are a lot of high-risk virology experiments going on, where there has been a big program of, of collecting wild viruses, bringing them into labs and manipulating them and experimenting on them, which there wasn't before. So uh, that reverses the burden of proof to some degree. Um, by the way, Dan Dennett calls this uh, kind of argument burden tennis. <laughs> you thwack the burden of proof back over the net to, to your opponent and you say it's in your court. I, I guess I guess the problem I have is the very concept of burden of proof in this because, again, we're talking about something. What's the total death count now, more or less? Well, um, officially it's something like six or seven million, but most people say it's that a sensible estimate is 20 million. Okay, so 20 million, between 6 and 20 million people dead. Lord knows how many trillions of dollars lost, right? Um, profound learning loss, profound damage to all sorts of societies. And a lot of health and, you know, uh, discomfort of the kind that you're experiencing right exactly. now. Well, that's not nothing. I mean, I'm, I'm coughing in the ears of many people driving their kids to school right now. And um, no, but my point is, it's like, why have an argument about burden of proof? You would just sort of think, you know, in the abstract at least, everybody look at everything and cover up nothing and get as much data out there. You know, I mean, of of all of the, you know, my dad had uh, one of the first African-American 
commanding officers in the U.S. military. My dad was uh, in stationed in Japan right at the tail end of the Korean War. And my dad's superior officer, uh, you know, to become a commanding officer and be an African-American meant you were at minimum good at working bureaucracies, right? And, and at one point he pulled my dad aside and he says, Goldberg, it is always better to be on the committee that says this must never happen again. And, um, and it seems to me like this is one of the easiest, this must never happen agains in our lifetimes. Right. I mean, it's, 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 there's a certain amount of, it's, it's not like a genocidal thing where people are worried they're going to be sent to the Hague. It's a, how do we prevent, what are lessons learned and how do we prevent this? If it's naturally occurring, we should really, really want to prove it because that's going to help us spot the next one. And if it's a lab leak, we should really, really, really want to prove it because that was the single most expensive mistake um, in arguably human history. And either one, you would just think, you'd think all the scientists would be of a mind that says, I don't feel like this is a burden to prove something. I, we should just put all our cards out there. I mean, of course, I understand that's not the way bureaucracies actually work. And governments actually work, but the whole concept of no, you have to prove it misses the point, which of, of what the actual incentive structure should be. Yeah, you're right. Uh, um, you remember an awful lot of um, scientists very strongly believe that the precautionary principle is a good one. Now, if we really believed in the precautionary principle in this case, we would ban wildlife food trading overnight throughout the world, but we would also ban most virology research overnight till we knew the answer. Because we would say, we don't know which it is, and the safest thing to do is to do neither of those things from now on. Instead of which, you're hearing an argument from virologists that says it's outrageous that people are talking about greater regulation of virology experiments or less funding for virology experiments, or a pause in the uh, gain-of-function research, that is to say, souping up viruses in the lab, which has been a habit in some labs, including in Wuhan, um, uh, or a, a pause in the project that got heavily funded in the US, but with partners, particularly in China, particularly in Wuhan again, which was to go out into the wild and harvest viruses and see which ones of them were dangerous by testing them in the lab. Um, now, that project, that experiment, which was being done basically under a uh, the, the label of PREVENT, it was a, it was a big um, USAID and other uh, funded um, project, um, uh, you know, that, that happened on a massive scale and it resulted in very large numbers of viruses being collected. But when it was launched, there were serious criticisms within science, within virology, from colleagues saying, are we sure this is not looking for a gas leak with a lighted match? Are we sure this is going to help anyway? I mean, there are millions of viruses out there. Are you sure you're going to be able to find the needle in the haystack that might cause the next pandemic? And... Let's say this virus did not come out of that research. 
that research has still been a dismal failure in this case because it failed to predict this pandemic. So, um, you know, you really can't make the argument that while we don't know how this happened, and while it's possible it came from that research, we should be doing a whole lot more of that research. And I speak as some, I mean, one of the uncomfortable things for me in this whole story has been that for my entire career, I've been pro-biotechnology, pro-science, pro-research. And I now find myself uh, relying on allies who have been campaigning against biotechnology for years and years, uh, against genetically modified crops and things like that, um, and who are doing freedom of information requests to try and find out what what happened. Um, uh, And, you know, some of my erstwhile friends are on the other side of this argument. But it... Um, it, it wasn't Solzhenitsyn who said, but somebody who said, truth is more important than consequence. We should also be clear that even though people who want to defend the the wet market theory or claim that the lab leak thing is nonsense and that it's a conspiracy theory and all these kinds of things, you actually re- just, I mean, just clear for the listeners, you reject entirely the the conspiracy theory is that there was anything deliberate about the release of all of this, right? That was a big thing for a little while. The former president of the United States said it was released to screw with his reelection, which doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah, I, 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 I don't buy that. I've seen no evidence for that. I think it's extremely unlikely. It's, it, 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 there's nothing that, that points in that direction. Um, so I think you're right. I think we can almost certainly rule that out. Um, uh, what we're looking at here is a... Um, uh, a pattern of experiments in a laboratory um, that were done at biosafety levels lower than they should have been. You know, most of the experiments on human cells were done with souped-up viruses up to 10,000 times more in- infectious, were done at biosafety level two, which is little more than a mask and gloves, if that. Uh, so the chances are someone would have got infected if this virus was being used in, in such experiments. Um, uh, and... Very recently, in the last few months, uh, a report came from the minority side of the Senate Help Committee, um, which uh, was the result of more than a year's investigation into documents online at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which were party documents, documents of the Communist Party um, structure within the lab, which... Uh, are, are fairly um, vague and obscure and sort of weird the way party communications often are. But if you analyze them carefully, according to these people who've looked at them for, as I say, more than a year, Chinese language experts, Chinese uh, uh, political experts, uh, and biological uh, experts as well, they conclude that there was something, there was something of a crisis in that lab in November 2019 exactly uh, three years ago today. Um, And there were meetings which uh, were uh, all about making sure something never happened again, making sure they tightened up on biosafety, um, and uh, uh, making sure they brought in new uh, measures to, to, to ensure that things were safer in the future. These meetings involved high-level officials from Beijing coming to the lab. And there are, there's evidence that some of the documents show that Xi Jinping himself had been made aware of this. 
So that's quite interesting, you know, that if there was a crisis over biosafety at the very lab we're talking about in November of 2019, and, you know, they're not just sort of picking one month, they're looking at all the months and they're saying, whoa, you know, the conversation is completely different in this month than it was. Um, uh, and they also make a case which I don't find quite as persuasive myself, but it's an interesting point, which is that the Chinese were really quite quick to produce a vaccine to this virus. And in the production of that vaccine, they detailed that they'd done animal experiments with the, the, the vaccine. Now, those animal experiments take time. They can't be done quickly. Uh, and so if you, if you step backwards from the first publication of those results, you find it unlikely that they began work in January of 2020. You find it more likely that they began work in November of 2019. So, there's, you know, there's a lot of um, bits of evidence, uh, including the fact that we know there were something like 270 cases before the turn of the year in 2019. Various leaks of documents have given us the ability to calculate that. And yet we've only been given the details of about half of those. Um, so why? Why not show us the rest? You know, who were the first cases? We know that the South China Morning Post got hold of documents showing that, that there were cases as early as uh, 17th of November 2019. But the Chinese authorities later insisted, no, there were no cases before the 10th of December. Well, is this because lab workers were infected in November and they don't want us to know that? Uh, maybe, maybe not, but you can see why people like me are suspicious uh, when confronted with so much secrecy and so much evasion on this topic. So the the, the Senate uh, report, as I say, came from the minority staff. Obviously, the Republicans were not in a position to subpoena people in the United States and elsewhere who had collaborated with Wuhan a great deal over the years and might know more. Now that they control the House, they probably will start subpoenaing people next year. And uh, it'll be interesting to see whether or not we can get to the bottom of some of these questions a, a bit more. Because some of the unhelpfulness has not just come from China, it's come from US researchers uh, and universities as well. Yeah, I mean, uh, we're, we're studiously avoiding rank political punditry here, but I would not get your hopes up too high um, insofar as I think it's entirely legitimate for the house to have hearings about the origins of COVID. The problem is, is that the incentive structure for the house GOP right now is such that the generation of outraged YouTube clips and sound bites is much higher than, uh, real fact finding and due diligence. And so, uh, I hope I'm wrong. You know, this may be one of those topics where they can avoid some of that, but, uh, similar in the UK parliament. Yeah. So it's, it's just, it's, it's, it's not a great environment. This on the argument that you pointed about, about the Senate report about Chinese developing a vaccine early. Isn't the fact that the Chinese vaccine is pretty bad evidence against the idea that, that they did it the right way? I mean, if, if your point, if the point is, and that's not your point, if their point is, is that to do animal trials, you need a certain amount of lead time to do that right. The fact that they clearly didn't come up with a very good vaccine, otherwise they still wouldn't be doing all of these lockdowns and so forth. Evidence that maybe they didn't follow the kind of protocols that they're 
assuming that they did. I think you're probably right there. I think, you know, there are lots of reasons why they might have cut corners and, and, and hurried uh, the, um, the, the animal trials on these vaccines. The real reason they weren't able to come up with a, a more effective vaccine uh, in a short time is because it, it takes years usually to come up with a, an effective vaccine to any virus um, if you go down the route of whole virus vaccines. If you go down the route of single protein vaccines like um, uh, Pfizer, um, BioNTech, uh, Moderna and AstraZeneca, Oxford did, um, then you can do it much quicker. That technology, as far as we know, is above and beyond the Chinese capabilities at the moment. It's a, a brand new technology that's developed in, in the West and that they haven't yet got. So in that sense, it's no surprise they came up with an ineffective vaccine um, or a, a, a semi-effective vaccine, perhaps it's safer to say. Um, uh, but you're not wrong to say, yes, that point about how long it takes to, to take a vaccine is not particularly convincing, I agree. So, what, so this is the question I want to get to before. It's confusing for people like me who only dip in and out of this from time to time. Oh, Matt Ridley's got a piece in the Wall Street Journal. I'll read up on this again. That's sort of my attitude about these kinds of things. And I want to get to that attitude a little bit later on. But um, the Chinese simultaneously don't like the wet market theory either, right? And I mean, it seems to me that this is one of the things that really muddies the narratives is you have Western virologists who say, no, 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 it's outrageous to accuse the Chinese of having a lab leak. It came from their gross, shoddy wet markets. And the Chinese are like, no, it didn't come from either. And in fact, I, the last time that they claimed an origin of this that I remember was when they said it came out of Fort Detrick. So like, what is the actual Chinese position on all of this? And what are the cross incentives that you think are going on here between sort of World Health Organization types and yep. the Chinese government? Well, it's a fascinating picture, actually, because they, they, they're floundering. You know, the Chinese authorities, as you say, they, they spent a while uh, claiming it probably came from a, a lab leak at Fort Detrick. And then they realized that probably wasn't very convincing because Fort Detrick is in the Americas. There aren't any horseshoe bats there. There's no evidence for it. And anyway, if they're talking about lab leaks, doesn't that make their own lab sound more likely that it leaked it? So they kind of backed away from that. They then made a big push of trying to blame the frozen food chain. There were quite a lot of frozen food sellers in that market. And uh, the samples of that tested positive for the virus in the market, which were samples taken off doorknobs, countertops, sewage, things like that, you know, they're not out of animals particularly or pieces of food, um, uh, did show that there was a certain amount of this virus in the frozen food section. So they said, aha, it came to Wuhan from overseas on frozen food, right, a lobster from Maine or a salmon from Norway or something. Well, you know, and they even got the World Health Organization, to its utter shame, to semi-endorse this, to say, yes, it's more plausible than a lab leak. Um, they backed off that after a bit because they were ridiculed for doing that. But, uh, it, it, you know, it was a pretty low point in the World Health Organization's reputation, that. Um, now, you know, nobody gives this a moment's thought. It's just not plausible. 
that it came from overseas. You know, you can just about make an argument that bamboo rats were being harvested in Vietnam and frozen and sent to Wuhan, but the vast majority of bamboo rat eating goes on in Guangzhou in southern China, not in Hubei in central China. You know, so there's all sorts of problems with that theory. You know, it would turn up in lots of places. It would infect the people who were freezing the food at the start of the food chain as well as at the end, you know, et cetera, even more than at the end. So that made no sense. But why, as you say, are they so keen to deflect attention from the food market? Because to start with, they clearly did think it came from the food market. You know, they closed it down and they uh, said, if you have pneumonia in Wuhan, it might be this new disease if you were near or had been to the food market. You know, the, the diagnostic criteria for whether you had COVID in January 2020 included some connection with the food market. So, you know, they clearly thought at that point that it had come. And then by May, they're saying, no, it definitely didn't come out the market. George Gao, the head of the Centers for Disease Control in Beijing, said the market was a super spreader event, not a zoonotic event, uh, you know, a spillover event. Um, uh, and why is this? Well, it's partly because they probably, you know, the evidence against the market is quite strong. You know, there's no infected animal. They couldn't find any infected animals. They've looked at 80,000 animals that were in the food chain in China. They haven't been able to find this virus in them. But it was also partly because the eating of the, the selling, the growing and selling and eating of wildlife is a habit that Xi Jinping personally has championed. Mm-hmm. He came to power saying Chinese traditional medicine, which includes, it's not confined to, but it includes eating exotic animals because they uh, have health-giving properties, such as powdered pangolin scales, um, even though it's made of the same material as your fingernails, so you might as well chew your fingernails, if, if you know, um, has anti-cancer properties or um, uh, pro-fertility properties or, you know, whatever it might be. I can't remember the details here. but um, And that aspect of traditional Chinese medicine is very pseudoscientific. I mean, it is, let's put, let's not beat about the bush. It's mostly bullshit. Um, am I allowed to use that word? Sorry. Um, yeah, it's fine. Ovine excrement. Um, <laughs> um, uh, but Xi Jinping went to the World Health Organization, and I think it was 2018, it might have been 2017, and said, you, the WHO, which gets a lot of money from us, and we pretty well appoint the director general of, must endorse traditional Chinese medicine as an effective medical thing. I want you to do that. And sure enough, they did. They came out with a statement in favor of traditional Chinese medicine. So if they were to say now that it was the sale of bamboo rats or um, uh, civet cats or or pangolins or whatever it might be in a market in Wuhan that resulted in this bat virus somehow reaching human beings, then they would undermine the case for wildlife farming and traditional Chinese medicine. And there's been a big push to expand wildlife farming in China, despite the experience of SARS, which was through this chain um, of supply. Um, uh, So, you know, whole towns have been encouraged to sort of 
devote themselves to snake farming or whatever it might be. Um, and uh, so, yes, there is a degree of resistance to that being the explanation uh, as well. And that's a reason for people like me being cautious and saying, although we think the evidence is now pointing quite strongly towards the laboratory, we have to take into account that the Chinese might be hiding something that points quite strongly towards the market um, as well. Uh, they really want it to be neither the market nor the laboratory. And by the way, there's another little angle on this, which is that people like me are sometimes accused, or others in who are making similar arguments to me, are accused of being racist, were somehow implying that the Chinese don't need to know how to run a laboratory safely, and that's racist of us because we're um, assuming they're incompetent. Um, well, uh, this this argument comes sometimes from the very people who are insisting it definitely came out of the market. Aren't they accused? Aren't they being just as racist? Aren't they therefore saying that the Chinese don't know how to run a market in a hygienic fashion? Um, uh, for me, I don't see that either uh, argument is racist. I think it's just an attempt to get to the bottom of the question. Yeah, I remember at the very beginning of the pandemic, there were all of these. Um, scolding videos and monologues from people talking about how uh, don't let your, you know, your occidental prejudices uh, and bigotries uh, allow you to condemn wet markets. Wet markets are blah, 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 blah. And I'm sorry if it's a part of my Western jingoism to think that you shouldn't be keeping these wild animals in stressed positions in in markets and you know we should not be eating bats like just like there are certain animals that my my just general view is the inner parent comes out in me and i'm just like don't put that in your mouth yeah i mean to, to be fair some of the videos we saw and shared in the early i mean i didn't share but other people shared in the early weeks of the pandemic of pretty horrific conditions in wildlife markets turned out not to come from china but from java or uh, elsewhere in southeast Asia. So there was a sort of a half a point there. And by the way, my objection to the wildlife trade, a lot of the wildlife is farmed in China now. You know, civet cats were being farmed for a particular dish called dragon tiger phoenix um, uh, soup, which is, uh, you know, a, a delicacy in, in Guangzhou. Um, uh, and the tiger bit comes from the civet cat. Um, uh, the dragon bit comes from a snake, and I can't remember what the phoenix is. I guess it's a bird. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, a lot of that is farmed wildlife. So in a sense, they're domesticating, they're keeping, they're growing, just as, you know, there are, you know, there are farmed, um, mink for the fur trade or whatever. So it's not necessarily any more, um, inhumane than other kinds of farming. Although there's an argument that animals that are only one or two generations away from the wild are, are find, uh, farming much more stressful than ones that have been doing it for thousands of years. My objection is more on the conservation side um, to what's going on here, because you'll remember that the pangolins got fingered wrongly early in the pandemic. There was an announcement in early February 2020 um, that a 99% similar virus had been found in a pangolin. turned out to be absolute nonsense. It was less than uh, 91%, It was, which is nothing like close enough. It's not even clear that that pangolin really was infected. It might have been contamination of the sequencing machine and the virus they found had no uh, furin cleavage site, uh, which is the 
key feature of SARS-CoV-2 that makes it pandemic and is the reason why you're coughing today, Jonah. Um, and by the way, no pangolins were on sale in Wuhan. You know, mm-hmm. so the whole thing was a But other than that. <laughs> other than that. <laughs> yes, apart from that, Mrs. Lincoln, how did you enjoy the play? Um, um, uh, but nonetheless... It's worth remembering, and we devoted half a chapter to this in the book because I think it's important, that there is a huge pangolin trade, that you can't farm pangolins, you can't keep them in captivity, so they are all wild caught, that the result is the extinction or near extinction of many populations of pangolins around the world. Um, uh, And having largely exhausted the wild pangolin population in Southeast Asia, there is now a massive trade in African pangolins going to China, and that the destination of most of these pangolins for traditional Chinese medicine is China, also Vietnam to some extent, but mostly China. So um, yes, there is a real problem. And yes, by the way, the Chinese authorities have tried to crack down on this trade. um, And that's why we had this red herring, because they they intercepted a shipment of 120 pangolins, about 20 of which were still alive, in Guangzhou in March of 2019, just about a year before the pandemic really got going. Um, And uh, some of those animals were examined by laboratories to find out why they were dying, to see what they could do about keeping them alive and so on. Um, And... Uh, you know, that led to the, most of them had viruses, including respiratory viruses, but Sendai virus was the commonest. These were probably killing them. Two of them seemed to have a SARS-2-like coronavirus in them as well. Um, We, of course, only knew it as SARS-2-like a year later, but, you know, it was published before the the pandemic began. So, um, you know, if scaly anteaters, pangolins, are exterminated in, in, there are about six species, if some of those species are exterminated in the world because of a demand for eating their scales, which are made of the same stuff as fingernails, and Xi Jinping's regime does nothing to try and educate the Chinese people into the view that this is a futile thing to be doing medically, Um, as well as a horrible thing to be doing in terms of biodiversity and conservation, Um, then I think he's derelict in his duty in not doing that. But I don't think it's anything to do with SARS-CoV-2. Yeah, so just to be clear, I find a lot of the wet market stuff gross on an aesthetic and culinary level, but my biggest concern too is the conservation thing. I was under the naive hope that the invention of Viagra was going to stop some of the worst you know, uh, poaching in Africa. Um, and, uh, you know, because, well, for obvious reasons. And, um, um, and it drives me crazy. Like I, I am, I am a hundred percent team charismatic megafauna. I like big, beautiful animal, you know, tigers, elephants. And, um, and the fact that China is, so inept at fighting, at helping fight those markets. It'd be one thing, look, if all these traditional Chinese remedies worked um, or had scientific basis to them, I'd have more sympathy for the position. I'd also say, okay, well, let's figure out what the properties are that are doing this and figure out how to do it in an industrial scale without killing tigers and rhinos and all of that kind of thing. 
but um, I find it utterly and wholly depressing. And the, I mean, I assume you know a lot more about this than I do. Is is Xi's embrace of the traditional Chinese medicine stuff? I assume he believe at least in part it's sincere. But is it part and parcel of this larger rejection of the idea of universal values that? You know, the, the universal values are a con, they're a fake. Uh, I've been listening to this stuff about G on the Economist podcast, and this is part of the, the argument is that the concept of u- universal liberal values is basically a post-World War II hegemonic imposition on the world by colonialists on the col- colonized. China is breaking free of that, and they, they so they reject these norms as basically just cover for Western interests. And it seems to me if you're going to try to make that case in a sustained way, you need some sort of epistemological thing that says things like Western science is not universal. And traditional Chinese medicine kind of fits the bill as much as anything. But is there some larger reason for it? Is it just that the Chinese populace is so invested in it that the Chinese government can't get on the wrong side of it? Because I know they've allowed for Chinese traditional Chinese medicine in in the treatment of COVID stuff too, which has been a problem. Right. Well, um, I don't know the answer to that question. Uh, I'm not a sinologist, but my guess is that you're right, that there's a degree of um, national pride driving this. Um, uh, We want the world to realize that everything we do is better than what you do, uh, including our approach to medicine. Um, There isn't any evidence that this is at the expense of an interest in doing science as well, because obviously China has been massively expanding its uh, interest in what you might call conventional science, experiment and uh, innovation and so on. And um, uh, yes, if you talk to Western scientists who collaborate with Chinese uh, laboratories, they do sometimes complain about a slightly more, you know, should we say impatient or um, less philosophical approach, you know, more interested in getting a patentable result than in making an interesting discovery, perhaps. But, you know, but I can't believe that that's entirely universal. There's some very, very good scientists in China. Um, and, and uh, you know, there's no doubt they're making huge contributions. But again, back to what the Senate Health Committee found in November 2019 at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. This was around the time that the new um, biosecurity level four, biosafety level four lab was opening in Wuhan. And there was huge pressure on the uh, people operating these labs at the Wuhan Institute of Virology to to produce more results and faster results. Um, you know, these party documents show that even the, before there was a biosafety crisis in November, there was also a, um, a, a demand to produce more papers, more patents, more results um, of a very sort of Stakhanovite type, you know, um, here are your targets, you must meet them, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, uh, you know, that put any scientist between a rock, you know, imagine if you were doing experiments at the Wuhan Institute of Virology on risky viruses, 
and you were being told you've got to get more data out, you've got to get more results, you've got to publish more papers, um, but at the same time, you're worried about the biosafety levels in the lab, about the procedures, about the lack of training of the people who are um, looking after biosafety or something like that. You're between a rock and a hard place there. And that's something that needs to be taken quite seriously as a uh, consideration. You know, were these scientists put under intolerable pressure um, to do things that would get them a high-profile publication in the West um, uh, and, and, and cut some corners as a result? So I said before, I'm one of these people who sort of tunes in and tunes out to this conversation, you know, periodically. There's a lot of other stuff to occupy my brain in, in, in the news kind of thing. I'm you're glad doing you're doing a great job of asking sensible questions. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm grateful to you for, for staying on it. You're a little bit like the reporter character from the TV series, the Hulk who's commit, convinced he has to convince the world that um, the Hulk is real. Um, and, uh, and this is not an insult because the Hulk was real in the show. Right. Uh, so, yeah, but I think we probably talked about this the last time you were on, you know, there's this tendency I think it's in the John Barry book about the great influenza um, of a hundred years ago. Pandemics bring out the worst in a lot of people. There's just something about them that, uh, and I'm sure it has a lot to do with lizard brain stuff about unseen threats are scarier than seen threats and harder for people to process and all sorts of things about the brain that deal with hygiene and whatnot. But at the end of the day, at the end of the, the great, you know, influenza, uh, pandemic of a hundred years ago, Americans just kind of stopped talking about it once it was over and moved on. And, and in part because they were kind of ashamed of the way they had behaved. Um, and I'm wondering how much of it's, it's, it's gotta be a very frustrating thing for you, given that you've been a science writer for all of your life. And, um, and one of the great things about, I imagine about being a science writer is that you don't have to get overly invested in conjecture about people's motives. But now you're in this, on this weird beat where like you want to do two plus two equals four and everybody's got, no, no, it's a duck. No, it's seven. No, only on Tuesdays kind of answers. And reason isn't of much use in that kind of situation. So you have to like leap to people's motives. So I'm just wondering how much of this do you think is like, people just wanting to move on, how much of it is vested interests of specific professions, um, bureaucracies, and all the rest? And, 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 and how frustrating is it to actually have to be constantly asking yourself, why are people telling me these things that I can't completely believe they believe are true? Right. Well, you've put it beautifully, and the frustration is real. Uh, on the one hand, uh, I'm told it's... Case closed. We know the answer. We don't need to discuss it again. And anyway, people are bored. The readers don't want to hear more about it. Um, uh, uh, and on the other hand, people say, um, "But uh, you know, we uh, we don't need to change anything. We don't need to learn any lessons." Um, and yes, I think there is a memory hole effect. I think I, I've been surprised by how quickly people have wanted to forget the whole experience of the pandemic. Uh, and you're right, that we should have learned that from the 1918 flu. Um, but at the same time, there's a strange 
you know, confluence of interest between those who want it to be forgotten quickly because they want to go on with their highly um, rewarded uh, experiments in labs without interference from people like me and others um, who are worried about this. Um, there's a confluence of interest there. And yet the, the debate is frozen in a very odd situation where, you know, I've seen a virologist claim on Twitter that the vast majority of virologists think it didn't come out of a lab. I've also seen a poll by YouGov of people around the world which shows that by two to one, Americans think it did come out of a lab. Now, if you really are that virologist and thinks that they're wrong, the Americans, wouldn't you want to get out there and persuade them? Wouldn't you want to get out there and change their minds instead of tiptoeing away from the subject and hoping no one talks about it anymore? that to me is 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 an odd feature of the debate that you know that people want it just to sort of go away and be forgotten and you know i get asked the whole time does it really matter is it worth rocking the boat over this with relations with china well i'm sorry 20 million people are dead i mean very least on a moral terms we owe them to find out why um uh, but in practical terms, we want to stop the next pandemic happening, and the best way to do that is to find out how this one happened and make sure we don't make the same mistake again, whatever mistake it was. But also, there are bad actors watching this episode. You know, not sorry, I don't mean the episode of the program. <laughs> maybe that may be true too. Um, you know, there are North Koreans or Al Qaeda or so and so saying, "Hang on a minute, you mean all I have to do is unleash a very infectious virus?" And it doesn't even have to be very lethal. And it brings the world to its knees. And better still, the World Health Organization will come along and say, I didn't do it. Mm-hmm. You know, what's not to like <laughs> if you're a bad guy? So, um, you know, and yet, you know, throughout this period, the, you know, there was a brief spell in 2021 when the mainstream media acknowledged that they had been wrong to call the lab leak a conspiracy theory. They've kind of gone back to doing so, but for a while in 2021, they admitted that that had been a mistake. And yet, much of the mainstream media simply won't touch this story. I mean, I literally cannot think of a single uh, case where the BBC has covered this story properly. This gigantic global news organization. Um, it, it, it had a very good reporter in Beijing who was very intrigued in some of the early phases, but he struggled to get stories in. Um, uh, and then when he had to leave Beijing because of the threats he came under from the regime, um, they've barely touched the story. Now, I don't mean to pick on the BBC. There's lots of other examples. But, um, uh, it, you know, it's, it's baffling to me that journalists have been so determined to look the other way. And your best guess as to why major media outlets don't want to do it, is it problems with China? Is it that they think so much, I mean, there's a thing in America we call, uh, I shouldn't say most people don't know what it is, but in the media we call it the Fox News effect. That sometimes when Fox News covers, um, um, a legitimate story, call it the crisis at the border. You might say they overcover it. That's fine. Those are different arguments. But it's a very real thing that if Fox News covers something 
that gives permission to the other networks not to cover it. Oh, that's a Fox News story. We don't want to seem like we're doing what they do. We don't want to legitimize what they're doing. And sometimes Fox covers stuff that doesn't deserve the coverage it gets, but sometimes it covers stuff that, but for the fact that Fox were covering it, the other networks would cover. And so I'm wondering, is it some of that, that people don't want to lend credence to the people who don't like the mainstream media, does it doesn't, doesn't want to doesn't want to concede any of the points about any of this, or is it just hassles with China stuff and all the rest? I think it's both. I think the the Fox News effect is real. I think the um, particularly in the U.S., but to some extent also elsewhere in the world, um, uh, admitting that Donald Trump might Trump must might have been half right about something is just too much for many journalists to do. Um, uh, he might have been right for the wrong reasons and all that, but but you know that even that's not good enough. The the partisanship in the media is now so the polarization is so extreme that it's it's really bizarre compared with when I was a, a reporter um, a long time ago. Um, but also there is a degree of not rocking the boat with respect to China. Um, uh, there are Chinese investments into Western organisations. There are uh, reasons for wanting to exploit the market in China. You know, you've seen that with Hollywood in spades in recent years, you know, changing the scripts of films not to offend uh, the Chinese government, etc. cetera. Um, uh, so there's a combination of factors here. It's a very, very powerful country now, and people think twice before um, uh, making a fuss uh, about it. You know, if this had happened in Brazil or Indonesia or um, Russia or somewhere, would journalists have uh, managed to um, avoid digging into it, keeping the topic on the boil, putting Western people who knew about it under more pressure? I don't think they would. I think there is a Chinese peculiarity in this story that is that is quite important. Yeah, the thing that keeps, and we, I know we have to wrap this up, but the thing that keeps coming to mind is, and I don't know how powerful a thing it is in the UK, but um, the Biden administration is under considerable pressure from the media in the US, um, particularly the Washington Post, for its relations with Saudi Arabia, because MBS ordered the murder of a columnist for the Washington Post. And if I were the Washington Post, I would be on permanent 24-7 jihad about it because you have to be about your own people, right? I mean, if someone murdered a staffer at the dispatch, I don't care whether it's good realpolitik and all the rest. I would, you know, be going guns a-blazing about it. But as you say, if something close to 20 million people died and um, we're not supposed to care about that the way, say, the Washington Post cares about one journalist who's murdered. And again, I'm not trying to minimize the horror of what happened to Khashoggi, but it, it it does sort of conjure Stalin's one death is a tragedy, a million is a statistic kind of thinking. Exactly. And, you know, a lot of Americans have got very, very angry with Anthony Fauci. And in Britain, a lot of Americans got very angry with Boris Johnson or um, Patrick Valance, the head chief scientist or whatever. But for me... Um, you know, lashing out at one of our own over this doesn't make so much sense as saying, I really want to get to the bottom of what happened. And if 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 there's anybody I'm really angry with, 
it's whoever is withholding information in China. Because that's where, so, I mean, my, my point is there's a tendency to, 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 to make it a story about American politics or British politics, whereas the, we need to keep the focus on what happened in, in China. Otherwise, we're looking for our keys under the lampposts and not where we dropped them. All right, I could do this all day. You're one of my favorite people to listen to um, and to read. Uh, it's, this is, uh, the book is uh, Viral, The Search for the Origin of COVID-19 with uh, Alina Chan. Uh, Matt Ridley, thanks so much for doing this. Jenna, always a pleasure. I really hope you get better soon. And uh, I'm sorry to, um, um, it's very good of you to take the time to talk to me while you're suffering from COVID. Oh, I, d- I just thought it was uh, playing to type so perfectly for me to be sick from COVID for this. Um, I'm just <laughs> glad you didn't, uh, write a book about cancer, something, you know, or, you know. <laughs> um, sort of, I mean, it's like, you know, what were the odds that Lou Gehrig would get Lou Gehrig's disease? I mean, I'm just glad it was something I could get through. Um, <laughs> anyway, thank you so much for doing this. Okay. So Matt Ridley has left the studio. He was actually recording from the UK. So if there was some distortion things, um, he occasionally would freeze up on me, but, um, fortunately our software records locally. So I don't think any of you missed anything. Um, I also, um, was just telling Adam I deserve an award because I hit the mute button while coughing relentlessly, uh, so many times, uh, that I, I, I deserve some sort of medal, um, which is, so in case Adam successfully gets out all of my coughing, um, that's what, uh, Matt was referring to when he was talking about how often I'm coughing because I was actually coughing throughout the entire thing. (laughs) Um, as for the rest of the schedule this week, obviously this is Thanksgiving week. Um, I might uh, figure out how to do a solo. I don't think we're going to do a second podcast this week because the, just the, 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 the craziness of getting ready for Thanksgiving. And uh, thanks again to everybody who found out I was sick and sending their uh, um, best wishes and condolences. Uh, 2022 is uh, really putting me through the ringer on the way out the door. Oh, I should, I should just let people know, in case you don't know who Matt Ridley is. I mean, like Matt Ridley was like the science editor and science correspondent for The Economist magazine for years. He's uh, like, if you think because he's on this beat that somehow he's this cranky guy, he's not. He is like one of the most, you know, respected science writers um, in the English speaking language and has written some fantastic books about genetics and evolution and innovation. Um and um, is just an all-around really great guy. So I just want to get that out there because I didn't do a bio at the beginning. And um, if you went into this cold, you might not know any of that. So with that, thanks again for listening. Um, I will be better, hopefully, the next time you hear from me. And uh, I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. This is a podcast.